Welcome to Marrow Masters Season 8, sponsored by Omeris Corporation and Insight. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and families cope with the psychosocial challenges of bone marrow and stem cell transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. Season 8 of our show focuses on clinical trials. We're covering how to find them, what to expect, and how survivors have benefited from them. We also talk to healthcare professionals about how these oncology clinical trials are conducted and monitored safely. Our goal is to answer as many of your questions as possible. Here's your host, Executive Director of the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, Peggy Burkhart. Welcome, everyone. Today, we welcome Dr. Corey Cutler of Dana-Farber. Dr. Cutler is the Medical Director of the Stem Cell Transplantation Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Cutler is the Vice President of the American Society for Transplantation and Cellular Therapy. Hello, Dr. Cutler. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me here. So today we're going to talk clinical trials, the why, the when, the how, the what. Dr. Cutler is going to give us the lowdown and the high points. Clinical trials are really the way we improve outcomes in stem cell transplantation, be it to reduce relapse rates in the leukemias or to prevent or treat graft-versus-host disease. Clinical trials really are the way our field is advanced. Without them, we'd sort of be stagnant and be doing the same things that we were doing 20 years ago. I'm fortunate that uh, a major part of my practice is actually to design and to run clinical trials. And uh, we're very uh, grateful for the support from all of our funding agencies like the NIH and NHLBI that, that help us out, as well as all the philanthropic groups that support our studies. But uh, we're here today to talk about why clinical trials are important, what we've learned about clinical trials, and uh, how we're going to continue to accrue and improve on outcomes with future clinical trials. So, Dr. Cutler, let's talk about what you've learned from clinical trials in the last, let's say, five to 10 years. We've learned tons. Um, the growth curve in the way we practice transplant has changed so dramatically because of the clinical trials. And I'll, I'll give you a few examples. So I personally study graft-versus-host disease. That's really what I focus my work on. In graft-versus-host disease, in the last five years, we've now had four drugs approved for the prevention and the therapy of GVHD based purely on prospective clinical trials that we have performed as a greater transplant community. The first drug that was approved was the agent Imbruvica or Ibrutinib, which was approved in 2017 for the therapy of established graft-versus-host disease. I was very proud to be a part of the clinical trial team that uh, proposed and designed and ran that study. Since then, two additional drugs have been approved for the treatment of severe graft-versus-host disease, and those are ruxolitinib and belumosidil, which are known as Jacophy and Resuroc, respectively. And again, I was proud and honored to be uh, in part uh, responsible for those studies. And then very recently, the first drug that was approved for the prevention of GVHD happened, and that was uh, Abatacept, a drug that's already been around on the market for some time now and was used commonly in solid organ transplantation. That was approved based on prospective clinical trials led by Dr. Leslie Keene here at Dana-Farber. So that's just a, some examples in the GVHD space. 
But there's so many other examples. We've learned how to prevent leukemias from relapsing by using targeted agents after transplant. And those uh, advances are 100% the results of prospective clinical trials testing novel drugs. So without all of these trials, we would be, uh, we would be stagnant. We would be stuck to where we were 20 years ago. Wow, this is really exciting to realize the effect this has. We were interviewing uh, different patients and, you know, it's so great to get your perspective and then to hear their perspective. What I thought was really interesting the other day was how they love to give back, how they feel that they are a part of history, a legacy that future patients will benefit from what they were willing to do in being in a clinical trial. And just listening to all these advances for GVHD, which we know is just can be so horrible. It's just very, very exciting. And how wonderful for you to be a part of so much of this. We, we really appreciate you helping us break it down. Dr. Cutler, let's talk about some of the myths that need to be debunked regarding clinical trials, because we know they're there. And let's just hit them head on. Sure. So a a lot of patients are very hesitant to participate in clinical trials because they're worried that they're going to receive placebo or sugar pills. And in fact, placebo-controlled trials are really important in what we do. It's really the gold standard for us to be able to prove that one treatment is better than another. When the standard treatment is nothing, or the standard of care is no additional drugs, then a placebo is actually an important part of a clinical trial. And unfortunately, some patients will receive a placebo. What I like to tell patients who are contemplating going on a clinical trial is that at the end of the day, if we truly believe that the therapy that we're going to offer in the study is better then we shouldn't be doing that trial at all. It should be the standard of care. And so we end up in this position where we have equipoise, where we actually are not sure if the new therapy is better than the standard or a placebo. And that's where placebo is so important. There are occasions, and we have learned, that there are times when a new drug might actually be not beneficial and, in fact, might be harmful. It's something we probably didn't anticipate before the trial started. But there are times where the patients who receive the active therapy actually have worse outcomes or have more side effects. And in that case, the patients who were actually enrolled to the placebo arm benefit more than the patients who were enrolled to the active therapy arm. So I think the placebo-controlled concept is very uh, hard for the patient to get their head around but it's exceptionally important. And it speaks to what you just talked about a minute ago, this this concept of altruism, how patients feel like they might be doing something to give back for the future. I talk to patients about that all the time when they are contemplating being on clinical trials. I actually tell patients that they should not be participating in a trial purely for the altruistic benefit of others they really should be doing it with their own best interests at heart. Uh, And they should be doing it with a goal of improving their own outcomes and improving their quality of life. The altruism should come as an added bonus. 
at the end of the day, if they derived benefit from the trial, they could also be comforted in knowing that others in the future will derive benefit from their participation. But altruism really shouldn't be the driver for a patient to participate in a study. That's so interesting because someone I spoke to yesterday, I think it was properly channeled. I believe she did it for the, the right reasons. And then I felt like the altruism was a perk. It made it even better, if you will. So I do respect that. And I'm, I'm glad to say that in my limited experience, the people I've talked to, they do seem to want to do it for themselves first. And then when it's all said and done, they're so happy that they did it for others as well. Right. And we know that even patients who participate in a clinical trial who don't receive the experimental or the new or the exciting therapy actually do better simply because they are participating in a study. A study will have a much more rigid follow-up algorithm. It will have many more associated blood tests and monitoring tests. And so there is this effect of simply doing better because you are participating in a clinical trial. And, you know, there are many types of trials to talk about. We focused so far on therapeutic interventions, but there are other types of studies that patients can participate in. The most basic are what we call cohort studies, where patients are followed to measure outcomes or to determine outcomes or to determine predictive factors for outcomes, even without an actual intervention in the trial. So all in that case, the patient is agreeing to is to be followed in a much closer fashion and to adhere to a much more rigid follow-up schedule. And we learn tons from trials like that. So patients who perhaps are a little bit uh, leery about trying a new drug or something experimental, this is the type of trial that actually might be perfect for them because there are no additional risks. And the only thing that can happen is that we gain information and knowledge that we can therefore apply to future patients. Well, I am so glad to know more about this. I remember a gentleman who we had, I believe we featured Mike on a webinar I believe he was in seven clinical trials. He just loved, one was on nutrition. He just loved being a part of them. So it's good to mention that, like you said, no additional risks, a way to, hey, who doesn't want a little extra TLC and to be followed a little closer? <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, some of these trials do require some effort. Perhaps they do require a few more follow-up visits than perhaps is truly necessary. They're almost always going to involve a couple of extra blood tests. So there are inconveniences associated with it, but it's a pretty low bar for a patient who wants to help, give back, participate to do something uh, really without putting them at risk of really any side effects or toxicity. Absolutely. So let's talk about how people can find out more about these clinical trials. Sure. So each transplant center is going to have an active portfolio of clinical studies that they're going to have to offer their patients. For the most part, physicians are going to try to offer a clinical trial where one is available to a patient. 
So most patients should not be in a position where they have to ask their doctor, is there a study for me? It never hurts to ask that question. But most of us in academic transplant practices really always have that list of potential trials for a patient at the tip of our tongue, and we'll be ready to offer it when the time is right. When you start to get into rarer situations or more complex things, that's where trials might become that much more appropriate. And sometimes patients have to look beyond their own center, particularly if they want to find something very innovative or very uh, outside of the box, if you will. And there are a couple resources for that. First of all, patients can actually use the central registry of clinical trials, which is found online at a website called clinicaltrials.gov. And that's a website where we register all clinical studies that are performed. It's really a prerequisite to have that trial recognized by health authorities and get that trial published. So if that trial is ongoing in the United States, you can be almost certain that that trial will be registered at clinicaltrials.gov. It's a bit of a cumbersome website. It's big, it's government. Uh, So there are a couple of other resources. You can go to individual cancer center websites. Uh, We, for example, put on our website the most prominent trials that we are advertising, if you will, where we might draw patients from other centers. And then finally, the National Myro Donor Program actually has a clinical trial web tool to help patients find clinical trials that might be appropriate for them. But to be honest, the easiest thing for a patient to do is simply ask their physician. And if that doc doesn't have a trial to offer on the spot, uh, they almost certainly will be willing to go and search the web, look at the NMDP website, look at clinicaltrials.gov and find something for that patient. That is very helpful. I appreciate that. So Dr. Cutler, we've talked a lot today about GVHD. Let's talk now about, are there other clinical trials to prevent and treat relapse? Yeah, so that's actually probably eclipsing the GVHD space right now. Uh, And so now we're talking a little bit about trials that can prevent the recurrence of things like leukemia or myelodysplasia or sometimes lymphomas. And the reason why there is really now a new plethora of these trials is because of our ability to target specific mutations and specific lesions in the malignant cell for which the patient is being transplanted for. Probably the best example is a target called FLIT3, which is found in a substantial portion of patients with acute leukemia. And this is a very common molecular mutation. And we now have a number of compounds that can target FLT3. They're used to treat leukemia prior to transplant and have resulted in higher rates and deeper rates of remission. And what we on the transplant side of things are trying to do is to determine whether the use of these compounds after transplant are actually beneficial. We know in many cases they in fact are, and FLT3 is one of those scenarios where we know that post-transplant maintenance therapy with a FLT3 drug is probably better than not. We've learned that uh, from several clinical trials, and the largest is about to read out. We 
I've learned very similar things for people with chronic myeloid leukemia or lymphoblastic leukemia who have a Philadelphia chromosome. That's a very common genetic abnormality in those diseases. And we have Philadelphia chromosome or BCR able, as we call them, drug inhibitors. And we know very clearly that the administration of these drugs after transplant is associated with fewer rates of relapse. Again, these are things we learned from prospective clinical trials, but we've uncovered so many more of these lesions that now we have these targeted drugs for many patients after transplant. And so we have to go ahead and test them all, either sequentially or in combination, to determine which ones are the best and for which patient we should be using which drug. So we are testing them both in prevention of relapse, and now we're also testing them as therapies following relapse. Unfortunately, some patients are going to relapse uh, despite our best efforts, and we are learning about new ways of manipulating the immune system in those scenarios. So we have lots of new therapeutics that involve uh, infusions of donor cells that we're doing on clinical trials, and then the addition of immune modulating or immune stimulating agents to help those donor cells, uh, that donor boost, fight the leukemia or the lymphoma or whatever the transplant was given for after transplant. So while all of the advances to date from clinical trials have been in the GVHD space resulting in drug approvals, very clearly the drugs that are targeted anti-cancer agents are also actively being tested and are actively being used now as routine uh, maintenance therapies, but we're always trying to improve upon them with newer and better clinical trials. Well, thank you, Dr. Cutler. This has certainly been enlightening and educational, and I just know this is going to help so many people who are trying to better understand clinical trials and make some decisions. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we finish up today? Yeah, I think there's one other important thing that I think is worth mentioning regarding clinical trials and participation in a clinical trial. I think it's important for potential participants to understand that everything they do in a clinical trial is entirely voluntary. Patients in clinical trials are fiercely protected by a set of rights and guardrails that we have purposely set up through our own institutions called IRBs or Institutional Review Boards. These are organizations that every cancer center has whose only goal and job is to protect the rights of patients who participate in clinical trials. They provide strict oversight of everything that we do and dictate the rules of engagement of a clinical trial. They monitor for safety, they monitor for efficacy, so that if a trial is unsafe, they have the power to shut things down. If the trial is so obviously beneficial that it becomes unethical to not offer the new therapy to everybody, they'll shut that trial down. And conversely, if the trial is so obviously not helping anybody that it's only putting people at risk, they'll also shut that down. So we call these data monitoring boards. Uh, so patients should really understand that their rights as participants are fiercely being protected by some very, very rigid oversight. Additionally, 
as a patient, you have the opportunity at any moment to withdraw your consent from participation. We very much encourage people to talk about that decision with their treating physician, but patients really need to understand that if they are not comfortable with the way a trial is going for them, that they can simply elect to stop participating. Uh, and that is well within their rights as a research participant when you're participating in a clinical trial. So very important. So patients who are a little unsure about signing a document, thinking that it's going to commit them to all of these things, very untrue. Uh, patient is in charge of their own experience on a clinical trial. And I want to make sure that that's very clear to the listening audience. That is terrific. Thank you so much for mentioning that. That's very important. Well, Dr. Cutler, thank you. Thank you. This has been terrific and appreciated. And uh, we will get a bunch of these terms in the show notes and websites and any other information that you might want to provide. We can make sure people have access to that as well. So thank you. Peggy, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to you, to everyone at the uh, NBMT link for providing this service for the patients. So thank you for everyone involved as well as your sponsors. Thank you. This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. If you know someone who would benefit from the information in our show, please share this episode with them via text, email, or social media. Don't miss an episode of our show. Follow the Marrow Masters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. To connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or follow the link in our show notes. The Marrow Masters Podcast is produced by Jagged Detroit Podcasts.